Hi, everyone. This is Pastor Spencer with you today in Reading Through the New Testament, a podcast to help uh, us read through the Bible, read through the New Testament uh, in one year, um, week by week, five chapters every week for the 52 weeks of the uh, year, beginning here in January and continuing all the way through December of 2022. I hope this uh, podcast finds you all doing well uh, today as we uh, begin our week one Reading through the New Testament, week one, uh, uh, beginning on uh, January 2nd here, reading chapters uh, this week, Matthew chapter 1 through chapter 5, Matthew 1 through chapter 5, opening up with the gospel of Matthew. Um, like we said, I hope that you have picked up a uh, reading plan. They're available at the Welcome Centers Um uh, the New Testament in a Year reading plan. It's got each week lined up for you, uh, the chapters that you can read, little boxes that you can check if you want to uh, keep a list as you're reading through uh, the New Testament this year. This week we begin our first set of readings, which opens up with the Gospel of Matthew. We talked about uh, last on the first episode, which was an introduction uh, to the whole New Testament, so to speak, and we talked about how the first four books of the of the New Testament are the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them are a distinctive account of a, a perspective upon the one Gospel event that happened in Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, whom we believe is God manifest in the flesh. And Matthew is the first gospel that we find in our New Testaments as far as the ordering is concerned. And Matthew is an interesting gospel because Matthew, of course, um, who is traditionally assigned the, the writer of this gospel, was himself a follower of Jesus Christ, a close follower of Jesus Christ, one of the 12. If anybody uh, knew what it was like to, to be with Jesus, to hear what he said, to know what he was like, to know what was true, to know what was false— it would have been Matthew. And Matthew wrote this gospel to help instruct others in the truth about Jesus Christ, to point to us and point to them and to point to all of us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, Emmanuel, uh, the, the Lamb of God. He is the King of Israel. He's the true one, the Christ that we've been waiting for. And so Matthew opens up, and we as we... Um, opens up our understanding of the New Testament uh, right away. And so it's interesting that the first thing that we we uh, open up with Matthew is a, a genealogy there. You'll notice the very first verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So why should we read Matthew? Well, right away from the very first verse, we see uh, that we should read Matthew because he helps us to see how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Matthew, uh, consistently, especially in these early chapters, you'll notice as you as you read this week, you'll see often that he quotes Old Testament passages and says, this took place. You know, for instance, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And over and over and over again, he's quoting the Old Testament prophets uh, to help his readers, who are probably a Jewish audience, to see, to see that everything that the Old Testament looked for and longed for and promised and looked ahead to has been fulfilled and accomplished in Jesus of Nazareth. 
Matthew helps us to see how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. Secondly, also, Matthew is unique in the sense in which he gives us five major sermons or discourses. Uh, These are found, of course, the first one is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We have it in his instruction to the 12 on on how they're to go and preach the gospel to Israel in Matthew chapter 10. Uh, he has uh, two sets of the parables of the kingdom talking about that in, in Matthew chapter 13 and Matthew chapter 18. And also we have his discourse about the destruction of the temple, his second coming in Matthew chapter 24 through 25. We have five major discourses, five sermons that are really put together there by Matthew. Uh, and they seem to be there. They they seem to be there intentionally, and you know it, it, it. You can't help but think about the fact that there's five sermons here, and the first five books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five were written by Moses, and so it could be also portraying that Jesus is a new Moses, a better than Moses, who instructs God's people in in in, in the truth of God's word, only Jesus is now God in human flesh, not simply a human representative from God, but he is the God-man instructing his people. So that's a unique aspect to Matthew's gospel as we begin to read it. And lastly, one interesting tidbit before we talk about these, what we're learning here in Matthew 1-5 through is that an interesting point to think about is that Matthew is actually the favorite gospel of early Christians. That's a, that's a fascinating thing to think about, because whenever we read the Gospels, each of us probably are attracted to one Gospel writer or his style maybe more than another. And that's okay. That's why God gave us a fourfold Gospel. Um, they're all inspired equally, all equally authoritative, um, but there's different types of nuances each of the Gospel writers bring to the table. And the Holy Spirit used those personality traits, their distinctive characteristics, uh, for the good of his people and to communicate that truth clearly uh, to the world. But Matthew was the favorite gospel of the early church. It, uh, one scholar, R.T. France, has said this, It is a fact, he says, that mainstream Christianity was, from the early 2nd century on, to a great extent, Matthean Christianity. So the early church really was attracted to the Gospel of Matthew, and so it's kind of exciting to think that when we're reading the Gospel of Matthew, we're reading a Gospel that was particularly cherished by the early Christians. All the Gospels are to be cherished by us, but it's an interesting thing to point out that the early church especially seemed to have appreciated Matthew's Gospel in particular. So Matthew chapter 1 through 5, we open up and right away we have a genealogy uh, here um, uh, of Jesus Christ. It opens up the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So notice right away, Matthew's goal is to show us that the true son of Abraham, the one of who, in whom all the covenant promises were given, is fulfilled in Jesus, and the one who is the true king, the son of David is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this genealogy can be very easy to skip over, but it's important to notice that this is, this is the line, the, the, the line of, of the kings, the line that traces us to get to the fact that we now have the king of Israel. We, it traces from Abraham uh, to David. Uh, it traces from Zerubbabel um, in the deportation. And, and afterwards, and then it continues on uh, to Jesus uh, Christ. Uh, 
It's interesting to note a few things. We don't have time to really go into it, but the people that are mentioned in it, the women in particular that come in there, um, Tamar, uh, the wife of Uriah, is mentioned, uh, which was Bathsheba. We have uh, Rahab, and I believe we have uh, Ruth. And, And it's interesting to notice we have some Gentiles in this list. And we've got uh, people under scandalous situations. If you go read some of those stories in the Old Testament, we realize right away uh, this list is not made up of perfect people. Far from it. It's made up of sinners just like you and me. And then after the genealogy, we see the birth of Jesus. He's born of a virgin. Um, We see the promise that he will save his people from his sins. He's the Emmanuel. Then in chapter 2, we see the the wise men come from the east. We see they come and they worship him. This is interesting because we have the Gentiles already coming to worship Jesus Christ after his birth. We also have Herod, the king of of Judah, of Judea, who's actually not an Israelite, but he's ruling over the, the kingdom at this time, and he's trying to kill the ch- the child, the Christ. And so he tries and to, to kill Christ, but of course Christ flees. The, the, an angel comes to Joseph and takes Mary and Jesus to Egypt. They come back later on, and Jesus grows up in Nazareth in obscurity. That is until a man starts coming to preach in the wilderness named John the Baptist. And here he's out in the wilderness. He's preaching to the people. He's calling people to repentance. And then who shows up but Jesus himself? He bursts onto the scene now, out of obscurity, relatively speaking, and and now comes onto the stage and is baptized. The heavens are ripped open, and God speaks and says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus then goes into the wilderness, is tempted by Satan. He overcomes the devil by quoting scripture to the devil. And that's a very good point for us to remember that that whenever we're faced with temptations, we, like our Savior, should rest upon the scripture, upon God's holy word um, in, in our conflicts with the flesh and with this world and with the forces of darkness. Jesus begins his ministry. He proclaims the gospel of the kingdom, calling people to repentance. He calls his first disciples. He does uh, miracles, preaches, teaches everywhere. And then beginning in verse 5, or chapter 5 rather, we see the beginning of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, which is takes up chapters 5 through 7. So next week, we'll have more of the Sermon on the Mount um, than we simply have the one chapter this week in this week's readings, where Jesus is teaching us what the kingdom of God looks like, uh, what his kingdom looks like, what the true kingdom looks like that he came to bring. So that's kind of a quick overview of what we're reading this week. And one of the things that I want to do uh, with this podcast is is instead of me simply, um, you know, we, we walk through an outline there, and that's good, and I'm glad we can do that. But I really want to help us to meditate upon just certain parts of what we've read and maybe to to just meditate um, for a little bit uh, upon some of the things that we've read and what they mean for us uh, today. And, and one of the things I want to use with the Gospels in particular is a, a book, actually a set of books, called The Expository Thoughts on the Gospels. They're by an English pastor from the 1800s named J.C. Ryle. He was a pastor in the Church of England. He actually eventually became a bishop in the Church of England. But he was an evangelical who 
clearly presented the basic and most essential and important gospel truths. And was a was a prolific writer, a great defender of the gospel truths that we cherish. And also, he writes clearly and plainly and practically for us. And I and I really appreciate it. You know. Um, I think he's he's a, a a writer that many. If you're listening to this, you might even enjoy reading him as well. He's actually quite easy to read, even for us today, um, in our modern uh, situation as well. Um, he's he's very plain and, and clear. And so, as we walk through the Gospels, I hope that uh, this will introduce you to the Gospel truths and help you meditate upon that. But also, um, just be. Uh, uh, know that I'm going to be reading extended sections from J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on the Gospels, at least for the Gospels part here, um, to introduce you to him, um, but also to show you um, some of the wonderful truths that he is able to pull from the scriptures that are plainly revealed there. But he has a great way of teaching them uh, that you and I can can sit and listen and read from him and uh, kind of uh, uh, meditate for a while upon what we've just read this week. So, first of all, a few things that we can learn from Matthew chapter 5 through, or chapter 1 through chapter 5 here in week 1. Uh, I'm going to be stealing this from uh, J.C. Ryle. The first thing I think that we can learn from um, is that God always keeps his word. God always keeps his word. And, and Ryle uh, is pulling uh, this idea here from Matthew chapter 1 ver- uh, with the genealogy there. And you see all these lists of names, all these people, Abraham, David, Solomon, uh, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Zerubbabel, um, going on and on. And we see this long list covering, you know, I guess around 2,000 years, uh, roughly, of, of history from Abraham to Christ. And we see that such a long period of time, and yet God was faithful. And, and Ryle has this to say. He says this, learn from this list of names that God always keeps his word. He had promised that in Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth should be blessed. He had promised to raise up a savior of the family of David, Genesis 12, 3, Isaiah 11, 1. These 16 verses prove that Jesus was the son of David and the son of Abraham, and that God's promise was fulfilled. Thoughtless and ungodly people should remember this lesson and be afraid. Whatever they may think, God will keep his word. If they repent not, they will surely perish. True Christians should remember this lesson and take comfort. Their Father in heaven will be true to all his engagements. He has said that he will save all believers in Christ. If he has said it, he will certainly do it. He is not a man that he should lie he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13. And what a wonderful truth that Ryle there is bringing out in in this quote here, uh, reminding us that God is faithful to his word. Look at this list of names. Look at the the sin that actually occurs here with uh, Tamar and Judah, with the wife of Uriah and David. Um, We see Rahab, it was a prostitute. We read about Ruth, who was a Moabite under God's curse, and yet God uses all of this, all this sin, all the corruption, all the evil in our lives is not too powerful for God to fulfill his promises to us. Nothing is too hard for God. He is not a man, as Ryle quotes that verse, he is not a man that he should lie. 
That should bring great comfort to us as believers, but as Ryle also points out, it should remind the ungodly, and, and we have to examine ourselves, and make and, and we should remind unbelievers that, and, and this should weigh heavy on our heart as well, that as Ryle points out, if they repent not, they will surely perish. We want people to come to know Jesus Christ in saving faith. And so we have to remind them that God promises he will keep his word. He will keep his promises to those who believe, but to those who reject those promises, they will receive the threats that he has uh, that He has also given in his word as well. A second thing that we can learn from Matthew chapter 1 through 5 is not only that God always keeps his word, but Ryle has a, a very wonderful section here. Uh, talking about the two names of Christ from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And there we see Jesus uh, Christ, uh, his the account of his birth. And um, we see, first of all, the, the fact that uh, the angel instructs, uh, I believe it's here, Joseph, um, that he is to name the child Jesus. Uh, yeah, verse 21 she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then in verse 23, the second name is, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he's talking about the two names of Christ and what this means for us. Listen to this. This is J.C. Ryle again. He says, let us observe the two names given to our Lord in these verses. One is Jesus, the other Emmanuel. One describes his office, the other his nature. Both are deeply interesting. The name Jesus means Savior. It is the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament. It is given to our Lord because he saves his people from their sins. This is his special office. He saves them from the guilt of sin by washing them in his own atoning blood. He saves them from the dominion of sin by putting in their hearts the sanctifying spirit. He saves them from the presence of sin when he takes them out of this world to rest with him. He will save them from all the consequences of sin when he shall give them a glorious body at the last day. Blessed and holy are Christ's people. From sorrow, cross, and conflict they are not saved, but they are saved from sin forevermore. They are cleansed from guilt by Christ's blood. They are made fit for heaven by Christ's spirit. This is salvation. He who cleaves to sin is not yet saved. Jesus is a very encouraging name to heavy-laden sinners. He who is King of kings and Lord of lords might lawfully have taken some more high-sounding title, but he does not do so. The rulers of this world have often called themselves great, conquerors, bold, magnificent, and the like. The Son of God is content to call himself Savior. The souls which desire salvation may draw near to the Father with boldness, and have access with confidence through Christ. It is his office and his delight to show mercy. For God didn't send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. John three seventeen. Jesus is a name which is peculiarly sweet and precious to believers. It has often done them good when the favor of kings and princes would have been heard of with unconcern. It has given them what money cannot buy, even inward peace. It has eased their wearied consciences and given rest to their heavy hearts. The Song of Solomon speaks the experience of many when it says, Your name is oil poured forth. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 3. Happy is that person who trusts not merely in vague notions of God's mercy and goodness, but in Jesus. 
Ryle continues here. The other name in these verses is scarcely less interesting than that just referred to. It is the name which is given to our Lord from his nature as God manifest in the flesh. He is called Emmanuel, God with us. Let us take care that we have clear views of our Lord Jesus Christ's nature and person. It is a point of the deepest importance. We should settle it firmly in our minds that our Savior is perfect man as well as perfect God, and perfect God as well as perfect man. If we once lose sight of this great foundation truth, we may run into fearful heresies. The name Emmanuel takes in the whole mystery. Jesus is God with us. He had a nature like our own in all things, sin only accepted. But though Jesus was with us in human flesh and blood, he was at the same time very God. We shall often find as we read the Gospels that our Savior could be weary and hungry and thirsty, could weep and groan and feel pain like one of ourselves. In all this, we see the man Christ Jesus. We see the nature he took on him when he was born of the Virgin Mary. But we shall also find in the same Gospels that our Savior knew men's hearts and thoughts, that he had power over devils, that he could work the mightiest of miracles with a word, that he was ministered to by angels, that he allowed a disciple to call him my God, and that he said, before Abraham was, I am, and I and my Father are one. In all this, we see the eternal God. We see him who is over all, God, blessed forever. Amen. Romans 9, 5. Would you have a strong foundation for your faith and hope? Then keep in constant view your Savior's divinity. He in whose blood you are taught to trust is the Almighty God. All power is His in heaven and earth. None can pluck you out of His hand. If you are a true believer in Jesus, let not your heart be troubled or afraid. Would you have sweet comfort in suffering and trial? Then keep in constant view your Savior's humanity. He is the man, Christ Jesus, who lay on the bosom of the Virgin Mary as a little infant and knows the heart of a man. He can be touched with the feeling of your infirmities. He has himself experienced Satan's temptations. He has endured hunger. He has shed tears. He has felt pain. Trust him at all times with your sorrows. He will not despise you. Pour out all your heart before him in prayer and keep nothing back. He can sympathize with his people. And that's the end there for that section. I thought that that extended section was just so wonderful, though, as we think about that, because he talks about the fact that Jesus is both Jesus, our Savior, and Emmanuel, our God, with us. Wonderful reminders of his divinity and his humanity, and of the tenderness and the compassion and the love of Christ, uh, of Jesus, in the Gospels. We see this throughout here in these first five chapters, I think, as well as you think about it, when uh, Jesus shows us the depths of his humility and his compassion to us, and that he's willing to be born from a line of sinners like this genealogy, um, and that he's willing to be persecuted and chased after, even as a baby. Uh, Ryle will point out in another section about how Jesus was a man of sorrows from his infancy. We see again his, his lowliness and his coming to us in his baptism. Think about that. The baptism was one of repentance, uh, calling for a change of mind. And yet Jesus is so lowly and, and compassionate and full of grace that he comes down into that filthy sinner's water and identifies himself with us for our sakes and for our salvation. So that you see, whenever all those people had gone into the water before, 
and I'm, I'm thinking about a sermon right now that I've listened to about Jesus's baptism. It's, it's in my mind and, um, it was quite, quite beautiful. But, um, when, when, when you think about Jesus and all these people, all these sinners, all these, uh, maybe notorious sinners and whoever uh, coming out here, the tax collectors, all these people in the water uh, calling upon God, confessing their sins and symbolically washing themselves of their sins. Uh, The heavens were never ripped open. Not a single one of those ordinary sinners like you and me, those people with hard hearts, with corrupt hearts, just like you and me, the heavens never ripped open for them. But the heavens ripped open, and the Father spoke, and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism. And so because God is well-pleased with him, he is now well-pleased with all of those also in Christ, all of us sinners who look to Jesus to save us. So over and over we see both the saviorship of Jesus, his his compassion and his saving work towards us, but also we see his divinity in that he is the one who can uh, defeat the devil and and come and rescue us and to save us and bring us back uh, to fellowship with God. So those that's a beautiful section, I think, from J.C. Ryle. So we see not only the fact that God is faithful to us in this in these chapters, we also see the the beautiful uh, description that we learn about the names of who our Savior is, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we learn the necessity of repentance, the necessity of repentance. John the Baptist preaches a message of repentance in John chapter 3, and then Jesus, right after, right after John has been arrested, he withdraws into Galilee, Jesus does, and we read in verse 17 of chapter 4, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. And J.C. Ryle says this, He says this, Let us notice the first doctrine which the Lord Jesus proclaimed to the world. He began to say, Repent. The necessity of repentance is one of the great foundations which lie at the very bottom of Christianity. It needs to be pressed on all mankind without exception. High or low, rich or poor, all have sinned and are guilty before God. And all must repent and be converted if they would be saved. And true repentance is no light matter. It is a thorough change of heart about sin, a change showing itself in godly sorrow and humiliation, in heartfelt confession before the throne of grace, in a complete breaking off from sinful habits and an abiding hatred of all sin. Such repentance is the inseparable companion of saving faith in Christ. Let us prize the doctrine highly. It is of the highest importance. No Christian teaching can be called sound, which which does not constantly bring forward repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20, verse 21. And that, again, is a great point that Ryle points out as we see here a theme here in these first chapters of Matthew's gospel is the necessity of repentance. Christianity is calling all mankind for a change of mind, to reorient and revise our our thinking, to help call us to see the way things really are, to see the fact that we're not simply people who are good people who do a few bad things, but to see that our whole being, our whole heart is hard and corrupt, and there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. We can only look to the Lamb of God who takes away our sins and who redeems us. That's the only way of salvation. 
And repentance is us seeing and recognizing and realizing who we are in God's sight and seeing what we, our hearts and then because of that, looking to God in Jesus Christ and trusting him, uh, resting in him and his offered grace to each and every one of us. Repentance is a wonderful wonderful thing. It's the call to return back to God. And and we see that in John the Baptist preaching here, and we see it in Jesus's preaching, and we see it eventually in Acts. The consistent call for all men to 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 reorient and come back and return back to God who can save us and cleanse us and make us different. And that's what we have to do every day as Christians, don't we? Repentance is not simply for people who are the first time becoming Christians, but every day as believers, we must daily repent. We must daily turn away from our old self, put that to death, and put on the new self in Jesus Christ. We must daily change and reorient our minds away from this world to the next world and to Jesus himself, to Jesus only. Sorry, I was just drinking a little bit of coffee there. Um, coffee is a great thing to drink while you're reading the Bible. Um, I, you know, um, I guess if you have to drink tea, that's fine too. But um, I'm drinking coffee right now. So, uh, one more drink real quick before we continue on. Okay, um, so we've talked about the necessity of repentance and why it's so important. And lastly, uh, J.C. Ryle uh, beginning to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, right? We begin, and, and this is the last reading for this week in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Jesus it begins in verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Notice, by the way, don't forget the fact that, look, it's on a mountain. And you can't help but think about the mount that Moses went up on. Or the mount, um, you know, when Moses goes up on the mountain to Mount Sinai, uh, big things happen, don't they? Um, I believe um, when God called Moses or called Abraham to go sacrifice Isaac, it was on a mountain. Whenever you see mountains in the Bible, big things are usually happening. Eventually, Jesus will be transfigured on a mountain. He will ascend from the Mount of, uh, of Olives, I believe, right? Um, he will ascend up back to heaven that way. So mountains are a big deal in the Bible. And Jesus goes up on the mountain, sits down, which is the position of teachers back then. This is an interesting point. Uh, today, if you're a teacher, you stand up and teach people. But back then, the ordinary posture for a teacher was to sit down and instruct. That was how you knew who the teacher was, the guy who's sitting right there. So Jesus goes, sits down, and his disciples, his followers, are coming to him. And we begin reading in verse 2, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus here is beginning his great Sermon on the Mount, his uh, majestic sermon, which is uh, famous. Uh, e even unbelievers will take some of the things uh, that Jesus says here. Now, obviously, they handpick certain aspects of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but nonetheless, 
um, both believers and unbelievers, uh, even unbelievers have a certain appreciation for aspects of the Sermon on the Mount, however much they misunderstand the truth of it. Um, but for us as Christians, it's a, it's a powerful sermon of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And that's what I, I want to talk about lastly here from J.C. Ryle. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And let's look at a little bit of what Ryle begins to say here about the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, The three chapters which begin with these verses deserve the special attention of all readers of the Bible. They contain what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Every word of the Lord Jesus ought to be most precious to professing Christians. It is the voice of the chief shepherd. It is the charge of the great bishop and head of the church. It is the master speaking. It is the word of him who spoke as never man spoke, and by whom we shall all be judged at the last day. Would we know what kind of people Christians ought to be? Would we know the character at which Christians ought to aim? Would we know the outward walk and inward habit of mind which become a follower of Jesus? Then let us often study the Sermon on the Mount. Let us often ponder each sentence and prove ourselves by it. Not least, let us often consider who they are that are called blessed at the beginning of the sermon. Those whom the great high priest blesses are blessed indeed. The Lord Jesus calls those blessed who are poor in spirit. He means the humble and lowly-minded and self-abased. He means those who are deeply convinced of their own sinfulness in God's sight. These are they who are not wise in their own eyes and holy in their own sight. They are not rich and increased with goods. They do not imagine that they need nothing. They regard themselves as wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Blessed are all such. Humility is the very first letter in the alphabet of Christianity. We must begin low if we would build high. A powerful reminder to us of what the gospel is and what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus picks us, calls us, and the first thing, the first distinguishing characteristic and trait of the people of God, notice what it is that Jesus puts here in the first verse of his sermon, verse 3. He doesn't say, blessed are the victorious. Blessed are those who who are surrender themselves fully. Blessed are those who, who do great things for God. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have given up on themselves and have found everything in Jesus and in Jesus only. That is the distinguishing primary characteristic of a Christian that we recognize in repentance, right? This change of mind, this reorientation, this realization of who I am and who you are, that we all share the same corrupt rock-hard hearts, and that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, but that in Jesus Christ, we have our sins forgiven, atoned for, we are accepted because of his sake, that God looks upon him, and in him we are beloved, and therefore he takes away our hearts of stone and promises to give us hearts of flesh that begin to grow and love him. But the first distinguishing characteristic is being poor in spirit. Jesus himself later on, we'll get to it, says, I am meek and lowly. 
we need to, all of us, I think, remind ourselves of the gospel and what it means. It means that we serve a great Lord who became low for our sakes. He was rich and became poor so that we might, through him, become rich. We have a great Savior, a great compassionate Savior, and a great God and Father who sent this one, and the Holy Spirit who indwelt and empowered him is in our midst and in us. So I pray that as you read the Gospel of Matthew, and as we continue on, that it will be uh, strengthening to you and helpful to you. Um, please let me know how you're enjoying these podcasts, if uh, you have any further ideas about what we could do with them. Um, and and if you're enjoying the uh, readings from J.C. Ryle, um, like I said, you can find, if you are interested in, in reading more about J.C. Ryle or reading his expository thoughts, um, you can contact me and I can, I can point you to some resources online or you can even buy the books. Uh, they're in print. You can buy them uh, today as well. Um, there's uh, one publisher, The Banner of Truth, that has a great set out there um, that you could purchase. Um, and, and Or I can just show you the way that you can read them online for free. They're, they're very good. And, and what I've read to you today is simply a taste, an introduction uh, to what you can find there online in more detail. And it, it's wonderful truth, powerful um, stuff, and very Christ-centered as well. So keep reading the New Testament. Um, keep your questions uh, coming and, and come and talk to me. I hope to hear how you're enjoying this and uh, how the Lord's teaching you as you read the Bible and as we read it together as a church and as families and as individuals. And um, I will be with you next week, next week, week two, Matthew 6 through Matthew 10. Take care and God bless.